I'm Aaron Weintraub, and this is Inside Kurdistan. So this is the second in what I hope will be a series of different interviews with some of the fixers I've had the privilege to come across, work with, hear about, etc. Again, for those who don't know what a fixer is, a fixer is a type of journalist who is locally based and has built up connections with all sorts of community members uh, in the area that they're from, uh, from everything from local authorities to displaced people, uh, covering everything from conflict to culture, investigations. Fixers are there to facilitate and act as the backbone for international stories happening here in Iraq and all over the world. Um, So this week, I'm talking with a fixer that we're just going to call Nasser, who is originally from a Kurdish area in Iran and moved to Syria following the rise of the ISIS caliphate in the region. And as a consequence of him moving out from Iran, the Iranian government has since blacklisted him from re-entering the country. He is now based in the KRI and has built himself up as a fixer primarily through his translation skills and his connection to his home country to help bring attention to Kurdish-Iranian stories, which we talk about as well. Uh, We get into, at the end specifically, his own insights concerning the protests in Iran that have defined the country for the past year and the role that he has helped play in bringing those stories and testimonies from people there remotely from Iraq to the world. We agreed to discuss these stories and his work on the condition that his photo not be published, so no headshot this week, uh, as well as not disclosing his full name. But I'll let him explain the rest. He's a lovely guy. Here's our conversation. It's funny because I actually haven't really gotten into uh, your personal life slash career that much. Whenever we interact, it's usually at a bar. (laughs) Absolutely. So absolutely, as it should be. Um, so we've when we first started talking before this at Origin Coffee, which is also a good place uh, for journalists to meet, um, you broke your life down into three different categories, three different sections. So why don't we just you give me those sections and we'll take them one by one. Yeah, sure. So uh, my name is Nasser and uh, I'm a Kurd, Iranian Kurd coming from northwest Iran. Uh, I was living in Iran until I was 21 years old, and that was the first phase. Uh, uh, a young man, or let's say, let's say as a kid from a you know from a poor family, peasants, you know, farmers from from the village who later moved to the city, and I made it to the university as the first you know kid in the family, maybe even the extended family. So a good university, which got me you know. Um, Relatively good future compared to to the the people of my age. I was studying English and I studied English teaching. Twenty one years old. Uh, the second phase of my life started uh, with the events of two thousand fourteen that were unfolding in the region, specifically with the ISIS attacks on the the region. Um, particularly on the Yazidis in Sinjar, the Syrian Kurds and Iraqi Kurds. So all these tragedies compelled me to do something that would be worthy, you know, of of, uh, of, of the time, of the time that I was living. So mm-hmm. after a much, you know, follow-up, much work online, I decided to leave my home country and uh, go to Northeast Syria as a volunteer, uh, helping the people, the local people in Northeast Syria with whatever I could, 
essentially whatever I could, uh, mainly in the areas of humanitarian work and uh, linguistic mm -hmm. translating, uh, journalism. And that was an experience of three years and three months. A couple of uh, near-death experiences that made me, you know, appreciate life. And yeah, and uh, I, I'm the eldest son of my family, I have to say. So uh, because of, you know, my decision to leave Iran, my family was somehow uh, negatively affected by that mm -hmm. emotionally and also, you know, financially. So it was a chapter that had to be closed, a new, you know, page to start. And I returned from Syria. Uh, due to some reasons, uh, I couldn't go back to my home country and I stayed in Kurdistan region. So I've been here for the past five years and this being the third phase of my life up until this moment. So we'll see what phases will follow from now. <laughs> I'm sure there will be more. Uh, you've started uh, uh, when you said your name Nasir, uh, you kind of shrugged and did a hand wave uh, for the people who are listening to this and can't see him like I can. Um, I should clarify, you're a man with multiple names. Uh, could you clarify why you have multiple names, what the cultural history is behind that, and uh, why we chose to go with this name today? <laughs> well, the story of the Kurds uh, regarding uh, you know, their, their social beings in the four countries in the region that the Kurds are, it's somehow common that this happened in, in, you know, in Iraq, in Syria, in Turkey, and in Iran. The thing is, from time to time, specifically talking about Iran, registering a Kurdish name uh, for a Kurdish family, for a child, was not possible. They just did not appreciate the family's picking Kurdish name. Instead, you were allowed to pick a Farsi name or a name that has Arabic roots. So what would happen, uh, you would have a name on the ID of the person uh, that falls into the categories, two, two categories that I mentioned, but then the family would just... Uh, naturally called their child with a Kurdish name, with an original Kurdish name um, within the family. This is not a name on any ID. It's just some nickname that they call each other out of intimacy and being fun to their Kurdish background and history. So you can uh, probably meet a lot of people from Iran, especially the Kurds with, you know, two names, a name on the ID and a nickname. Mm. And you told me that you sort of had a bit of a political awakening around 1516. That may have been the precipice for you going to Syria uh, a couple of years later. I'm curious what sort of galvanized that uh, political awakening. What sort of woke you up to the situation that was happening around you, especially because you're in a relatively remote area? Yeah, this was in 2009, uh, which, in fact, I was not eligible to vote, but... The events that uh, followed the, the 2009 elections in Iran with the uh, nationwide protest and the way that uh, the Iranian government behaved and treated uh, the Iranian protesters, the amount of violence that it deployed uh, to, to you know, move on with the crackdown, it was something that a teenage boy of 15, 16 years old couldn't tolerate. Mm -hmm. And... The first question was for me back then, why this is happening? Why am I living in a country that people are getting killed for demanding a right, you know, be it a social right, a, a political matter, etc.? And this was around the same time that we were, you know, connecting to the rest of the world. You know, this was, we had internet back then, but then books, movies, and learning about the rest of the world, these questions were very fair for a young man, for a teenage boy to ask, actually. And 
it just didn't sound right. There was something wrong, and uh, it moved me over time to study more, to learn more into uh, the the environment that I was growing in, and I found out that the foundations of uh, of the current you know uh, situation in Iran was wrong, and uh, yeah. Did that inspire you to get into English studying? English is studying. Uh, I think that was mainly triggered by the fact that I grew up in this multilingual uh, community. Uh, as I, you know, mentioned, we uh, in our immediate area we were speaking three languages by the age of seven, eight. Yeah. So it made it easier to learn other languages. Uh, I was good at it, so I decided why not learn the fourth one. What and languages are those, by the way? So I do speak two uh, uh, main dialects of Kurdish. We have a lot of other dialects, yes. but the two main one being Kurmanji and Sarani. I do speak uh, Azari. I do speak Farsi, and then a couple more to name later on in this yeah. interview. Now, but getting back to the the previous question, I think uh, again when I was in my early teenagers, I, uh, you know, discovered applications, CD drives from the, you know, BBC Learning English. And uh, these were, uh, I do not have a British accent. I know that, but I was initially having that. You have a slight British accent, actually, with certain words. I think that faded out as soon as I was introduced to more, you know, English conversations. So you were in university, and you left to Rojava. We can call it Rojava, or northern Syria, to be more specific, uh, uh, the Kurdish region of Syria, uh, for people who may not know. Um, you left that to initially go teach English. I would say mainly I was going with the intention what sort of humanitarian work I could do there to, to help the people. Mm -hmm. uh, the Syrian people, and specifically the Kurds in northeast of the country, mm -hmm. Uh, were facing an all-out war. A lot of people were leaving, the people with experts, you know, and knowledge. And uh, people, you know, naturally would avoid, you know, living in a war-torn country. So uh, the ones who had remained, the ones who couldn't leave, the ones who couldn't carry all their, you know, lives and move, they needed help. So I said, I could go there. I could be teaching English at a camp. I could be helping with people with providing them with mattresses, food, necessities, etc. And then the, the other thing was that uh, this region is specifically, back then, I mean, even Iraqi Kurdistan and North Syria, they needed assistance in terms of humanitarian organization providing aid. But very few people were remained who could, you know, communicate and connect this culture linguistically with, mm -hmm. with these organizations, English for that being. So uh, I was translating a lot of reports on you know, the needs that the region had with regards to aid, medical equipment, etc. And so these were, you know, the thing that framed uh, my intentions of what I would be doing in North Syria during my stay. And at what point did you start hearing from your family about having issues with the Iranian government? And what, what transpired with that? This was indeed a, uh, a very somehow unexpected turn of events because uh, unfortunately the the system in Iran the current political the, the, the political system in system in Iran tends to persecute people who go out of the boundaries that it has defined and forced upon the people uh, it was only like three to four months 
post my departure from Iran that I learned my uh, parents, specifically my father, was called in uh, by the government offices, and he was questioned and summoned about you know these matters. Uh, accusations were unreasonable, and uh, I was physically out. So for me, there was very little you know interest or concern to follow what happened. Mm -hmm. But uh, were you angry? It was a mix of feelings. It was a whole mix of feelings. A family who just, you know, suddenly do not have their son with them. Uh, and uh, they are being questioned about the situation that had happened. And they were not to be, they were not to be blamed. Uh, I, was, I was very confident in the good faith of my decision. So up until today, when I look back with all the some of the ne negative consequences that this brought, I tell myself there are no regrets. If, you know, things were to be, you know, happening again, I would choose the same path because uh, there were nights before this, you know, during ISIS attacks that as a young man, I couldn't sleep. Um, we were, I was a student, but also teaching at the same time. So we were, you know, working on the social media, being active to raise awareness about the Kurdish people being attacked by ISIS, no matter in Iraq or in Syria, mm -hmm. and specifically the, the, the genocide against the Yazidi people in August 2014. So uh, the nights that went without a sleep, the anger that was inside me, uh, when I went actually to the field and I did what I could, it's it felt good mm -hmm. it felt humane it felt being part of this you know human race so i'm happy about it it's interesting to me when i hear someone talk about especially fixers but someone talk about how their journey into their career some people who sort of stumble into it um you know i talked with halan last week and he owned a restaurant before he started fixing it was a complete turn of a uh, uh, priorities for him. You seem to have come into it much more organically all, and also much more from a linguistic perspective. Um, I'm curious about when you decided to take the work that you were doing, the translation work and, and the, the frontline work and the humanitarian work, and really put it into sort of a journalistic scope, really pursue that, that journalistic edge to that kind of work. Yeah, I'm glad you asked that question. That... Uh... That sounds almost the way it is, but let me give you more of how this happened. Uh, truly, look, uh, when you happen to speak multiple languages, you can think of yourself that I can connect these social, cultural, political divides to another uh, part of the world, mm -hmm. be it in journalism, be it in humanitarian work. So with languages that happens. And I have been into languages for a long time. So uh, there was a war-torn country, a country in conflict, and people definitely would like to, you know, learn about what's going on and how, how things are, are developing there. So uh, I think the first experience of me working as a contributor or, let's say, fixer, uh, with 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 media and especially international media happened in in North Syria. This was during the the uh, liberation of Raqqa 
where the local forces together with the coalition uh, were, you know, fighting ISIS to, to remove them from their capital. Uh, I was there with other friends and uh, journalists in April 2017 in just outskirts of, of the city and um, surviving from the improvised suicide drones, the small drones that ISIS had made and losing some people that I knew to that conflict, uh, which was very unfortunate. It happened organically, truly. Uh, but then um, when I left North Syria and I came to to Iraqi Kurdistan, uh, Again, uh, I learned another language, or better to say, improved this language, and I, I, I was able to connect with a wider community. Uh, I was um, the group of my friends were mainly, you know, these people who were working again with, uh, you know, NGOs or uh, international media. So uh, there was a need. I think that the right word here would be the urgency. What what pushed me to work as a linguist fixer. Uh, contributor to to uh, journalists outside was the urgency of the matter. Mm-hmm. Uh, for instance, we have a lot of untold stories from where I come from. The the story of the border uh, porters, or as we call it, the coldars, the the very grievances that Iranian and the Iranian Kurdish people are suffering. So, uh, I did multiple. Uh, work with different outlets, uh, mainly translating, but sometimes also working as online uh, fixing, as you may call it. So, uh, yeah, we had a very uh, large and uh, comprehensive story about the cold bars. And then, you know, again, in September 2022, uh, let me just wrap this. In September 22, when the protests, you know, uh, happened in Iran, there was a very immediate urgency to 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 help people mm-hmm. to report the stories. Yeah, you 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 zoomed ahead so quickly. <laughs> we have to get into okay. So 2017 uh, uh, was your last year in Syria. You moved to KRI, Kurdistan region of Iraq, in 2018. What was your decision for moving to that area, and what were some of the adjustments that you had to make? I'm curious about, from especially coming from the front lines in, in the war in Syria to coming to KRI. Um, to a certain extent after the liberation of Mosul, to a certain extent when things are beginning to, in some ways, calm down uh, and starting to like sort of per- build your career out from, from what you've done in Syria to here, uh, what were some of the adjustments that you had to make? Again, great question. So reporting uh, from the front lines and also the urban areas of North Syria was a different story. But coming to Iraqi Kurdistan, um, normally I would say when you go somewhere, it takes at least six to, to six months to a year to to adjust and get accustomed to 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 the uh, to your current environment. Uh, and then in my personal case, there was the, the situation with a refugee status. Mm-hmm. So I think it was somehow more difficult. Uh, How so? Look, uh, when you are living as a stateless person, technically, you're rendered effectively someone who cannot travel, who cannot have access to his own, his own country. So these are the limitations that have 
been forced upon me, but I'm not the only person. There are many others in, in similar conditions. So uh, this limits you. This sometimes grounds you. But realizing that fact and despite that, working to do whatever you can and, and uh, be happy about your life, no matter how hard it is. Uh, so what I did is that yeah, the first year was more more of a learning process, trying to understand uh, the the area, uh, the people, and then slowly I, I blended into uh, I blended back into the humanitarian work. I started working with a humanitarian organization uh, up until today, and at the same time uh, I have been connecting to to more people uh, in the journalism field. Uh, and it has been a good experience because growing up in Iran, living and working in Syria, in northeast Syria for three years, and then being in Iraqi Kurdistan, uh, that's like three countries in the region and three of the hot very, areas. Very different countries, too. Yeah. I mean, okay. So let's get back to, you You mentioned the Kolbar story. I, some of our audience might not know what coal bars are. So if you could explain that and explain how you went about coordinating for that story. Absolutely. So uh, coal bars, uh, or if you want to use you know, an English word that would fit right, would be the porters on the border. Oh, in, the okay. in Iran, the, the Kurdish areas, not only Kurdish areas, but the ethnic areas that fall outside the central government, uh, have been neglected for a long time. Uh, these areas are mainly underdeveloped, and the resources that are available to people from capital are not available to people on the borders. So in northwest and in the west of Iran, where you know the majority of Kurdish people live there, live there, uh, people not having the the job opportunities available to them or you know the the equal opportunities to them for them to get into the market and survive financially uh, they improvise new uh, new works and one of them since more than 40 years actually has been the the trade of irregular goods or let's say the irregular trade of goods mm-hmm. Uh, on the border between Iraqi Kurdistan into Iran or Turkey into Iran. What happens, people just have life, you know, life's goods, uh, household goods, and other stuff, and they, they, they carry them on their backs in very mountainous areas, very steep uh, mountains and with cliffs, and they are paid for their work. They're paid for the labor of carrying these goods into Iran or the other way around. So this person, uh, coal uh, is a Kurdish word. You could translate it as shoulder or your back, okay? And then bear means to carry. So it's someone who carries these goods, uh, th- these, these goods on their back. And unfortunately, there has been a very ill treatment of these uh, you know individuals by the Iranian government every week every month and every year there are people who are being shot at yeah. by the Iranian border guards so the story that we did was to understand the very dynamics of the situation that has been going on for four decades uh, we uh, I was you know introduced to uh, a gentleman 
uh, who uh, international journalist and we did like seven to ten interviews maybe more with with cold bears but then I was here and we had to do the work online so communicating with individual cold bears some of the you know uh, civil society activists and talking to them about their stories and there was always something new to learn there was always you know these personal stories that added you know more info to to my learning of that what were some of the stories that you heard I think uh, the very sad part of this was the fact that there were very qualified people in you know the Kurdish areas of northwest and west Iran that for instance they were champions at, at running they were champions in a sp- at sports mm-hmm. they had good studies like these people had uh, uh, bachelor master degrees and even doctor yeah. I had you know we talked about a person with a PhD do- uh, degree and they were Again, because of all the reasons that I mentioned, they were forced into doing that. So uh, it was tragic to see that. And even knowing, knowing that the people are getting killed by the Iranian border guards mm-hmm. on the border, how desperate the situation is that you would still do it. So there is definitely the the, the why question that you need to rise there. So these were these were the the most uh, let's say touching and you know uh, points that really impacted me during that story. So let's fast forward again, uh, and you touched on it before, but this past year has been a huge year uh, for Iraqi Kurdish and Iranian Kurdish relations and and the two countries as a whole. Um, so I'm curious where you started finding your way through the uh, the uprising that has happened in the past year. Uh, and if you could give people who might not know anything about this a summary, and then we can start to zoom in on sort of where you found your role uh, in terms of reporting and fixing for this. Let me start like this. There is a government in Iran that has been ruling, ruling for more than 43 years, and uh, generations have changed. Four generations, four decades. And every time you're, you know, hearing something new about Iran. The new generation of Iranian people, the very young men and women, are asking themselves the very questions that I asked myself when I was 15 and 16. Mm. And it was, if the world is progressing, if we're all part of all, you know, human race, why the situation in my country is like this and why the rest of the world is different. Why do I not have the same opportunities? Why do I not have the same freedoms and equal rights, gender equality? Why there is so much discrimination, you know, against women, against, you know, ethnic groups, social groups, etc. As soon as they ask them themselves these questions, why? It leads to opposition to the current system. Because the current system as I remember it, you know, does not feel the need to engage with with the people. Because if that was the case, there would have been referendums on different topics, even on the legitimacy of the government. So uh, the idea of reform has been dead for a long time. There is no willingness or acceptance from the government for any sort of referendum. So what you have there is 
when there is a situation like a tragic death of a young Kurdish Iranian woman, uh, Gina Amini, it ignites the, the first spark of people. And that pressure and that oppression, suppression, and uh, just explodes in one way or another. Mm-hmm. Uh, the Iranian people, from what I know, what I'm following, and the people that I talk to, they demand change. They demand change. And if the if the government does not listen to that, um, nobody knows how this will, you know, this will unfold in future. Uh, again, as someone who had a political awakening in his teenage years, uh, I have always wanted the, the home country of, uh, you know, my home country to be free. And so... Uh, during uh, these protests in September 2022, uh, I wanted to to have the people's voices heard by the rest of the world. So the the mean or the medium that we had for that is international media. Yeah. Now the limitations were the fact that media cannot go there. There are certain limitations by the government. There is the risks of being arrested and the freedom that you will not have to cover objectively. So what you have in your hand is to do, again, online fixing, online interviews. And with that even, we had a lot of problems. We had the internet being disrupted constantly by the government, day and night. Uh, phone calls were being call, uh, cut. And even with that, uh, I worked with a number of international outlets, some of them uh, known to the world. And uh, we mainly covered the story of the protesters being uh, falling victim to the to the government's crackdown or the amount of violence that that was being deployed against the people by the government and uh, some of the very major stories that for instance you know happened in in south east of the country uh, there was a tragic uh, massacre of the people in those areas and also interviewing people who could talk and communicate with the rest of the world and tell them what they want, what they want to be heard. And I think these were effective because uh, with an objective angle to this matter, uh, people hurt. Mm-hmm. People you know, around the world, the, the, the international community, to some extent, very different to previous times, heard about the Iranian grievances and there were actions that were taken. So again, online interviews, conduct co-conducting interviews, uh, translating and um, fixing, finding people, making phone calls, and having a network of people that you could talk to across the country, which is very large. Yeah. And okay, so. A lot of the times when you you talk with fixers, a lot of the conversation automatically trends to sort of the action, the front line. Where were the explosions? How close were you to them? And things like that. And so a reason I really wanted to talk to you is because a lot of your stuff is remote. It's online. And I'm curious emotionally what it was like for you to have to do that kind of remote work from about your home country that you can no longer access. But reporting on like the people who are there's behalf from KRI. Well, how did that affect you? I'm, I'm, I'm curious about, was it validating? Was it frustrating? I mean. Yeah, especially during those days and nights. I remember sometimes I would start working in early morning and I'll end up at home, you know, at about 10 or 11 p.m., mm-hmm. only in the night. Uh, 
constantly looking at your laptop, at your phone, making these phone calls, these interviews. Uh, there were moments that the interviewees would burst into tears. They would cry, emotionally expressing themselves. There was anger. There was... Sometimes you could feel, you know, personal feuds that would being, you know, seeded into people's heart just because, you know, uh, because, you know, one of their loved ones was, was killed in the protests. So when you're exposed to that for a long period of time, you can feel the trauma. Uh, I mean, it's not going to be as much as what they're going through, but sometimes knowing a lot about what's happening in a country as large as Iran with different stories, I mean, different communities. You, mm-hmm. w- w- we're talking to people, you know, in Southeast, in the Northwest, in, in the capital, and everyone had a different story that, that, was, that was very emotional. Balancing your feelings uh, was not easy. Mm-hmm. And again, what, what stands out to me is all the interviews that we had and, and the interview we would, would, would be very emotional and crying. It was, you know, these hard moments to... to and you are translating, so you have to, you know, stay there. You have to be for that person. So not only you translate what they said, but make sure how they said it. Right. Make sure how they express themselves, all those emotions. And, yeah, these were very heart-wrenching from time to time. Mm. A lot of these reports, and we're going to leave the names of these outlets out for this interview, but a lot of these reports were published without uh, your own credit as a contributor, and that's partially for your safety. Uh, I'm curious sort of how you, from a career standpoint, just have to pass up an opportunity like that to put your name out there as a journalist and, and in, in for your safety and also for your family's safety and people that you know back in Iran, uh, if, if that's frustrating. You described it before when we were talking over coffee as bittersweet. I was wondering if you could expand on that. Yeah, absolutely. This, this I would say, uh, will be the bittersweet part of my story. Look, credit is important. Obviously, we would naturally, you know, seek being credited on something that we work on. For me, it was on two levels. First, if the story out if the story is out objectively, if my work has been recognized in that story, then it's fine. But on the other hand, uh, it was the matter of, you know, having loved ones still in the country. And these stories had the potential to be, you know, a an indirect, you know, um, tool of pressure against them. So I wanted to make sure that my loved ones were being protected by, you know, not being credited on a story that that was uh, exposing the government's violence and cruelty. Um, I think over time, in future, things will change, and you can always, you know, recover that credit that was that was not there in the first time. So yeah, it is bitter but also sweet. <laughs> well, they owe you a lot, uh, and they'll likely owe you a lot more in the future. Uh, but uh, Nasir, thank you so much for sitting down with me today and telling me about uh, your background. I really appreciate My it. My pleasure, Aaron. Thank you for having me. 
Cheers. Cheers. Thanks so much once again to Nasser for dropping by the studio to talk. Inside Kurdistan is brought to you by the Kurdistan Information Network. You can check out our podcast on kurdistanin.net. Be sure to subscribe to us on Apple, Spotify, or wherever you listen to podcasts. And if you have any questions or comments, you can reach out to us at info at kurdistanin.net. Thanks so much. I'm Aaron Weintraub, and this has been Inside Kurdistan. Thank you.